Picture back for 2015. And we're going to lead off uh, this week with The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. And I'm joined by two of my very good friends, uh, starting with Mr. Jason Diamond. How are you, sir? Hey, how's it been? Happy New Year. You too. Good to talk to you. You been busy? Yeah. Yeah, I keep I keep missing all the movies before you record the thing, so I can't. I can uh, do fun shows. Well, we're very glad to have you uh, in this show. And Ian Fails, how are you, Ian? Good, Mike. It's good to be back on the VFX show again. So this is the third or sixth film, depending on how you want to look at it, um, of uh, The Hobbit. The third film, obviously, in this particular trilogy, but it obviously can't be discussed without reference to The Lord of the Rings. Um, Jason, starting with you, were you a fan of The Lord of the Rings films? Uh, Yeah, I really like those movies. Um, the, the epic scale, you know, alone, although uh, on top of the fact that I read the books as a kid. And so there's some nostalgia in there. But I, I you know, it's it's a much larger story and a much larger universe to use your to use your uh, analogy that you just said it. While it's the third film in the Hobbit trilogy, it feels like the sixth film. Because it's so. The whole trilogy, Hobbit trilogy, is feels so drawn out and kind of long. Well, just in just on terms of that, in terms of the original text, Ian, the the original Lord of the Rings book, quite big, but came out several years after the Hobbit book, which was you know what a third of the kind of page count of the original book. So there was, as as Jason says, a lot more material in the Lord of the Rings, and this always was going to be just two films before it became three. That's right. The, the Hobbit is, is a smaller book and also, I guess, intended for a different audience in some ways than Lord of the Rings, um, you know, mostly read by children. Um, and I think, you know, it, it kind of, my reaction to the whole trilogy is that it feels a bit stretched, but um, I guess we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, originally it was only meant to be two films. It's really, yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because from a financial point of view, as I'm looking at The Hobbit, The Battle of Five Armies, it's already done... $780 million worth of business. So I mean, from a financial point of view, turning it into three films has just been a winner for New Line slash Warners. I mean, it's just clearly, you know, the films are not flops. They're massively um, revenue-intensive productions, which, you know, is good. But if we do leave that aside for a second, and before we get to the VFX, um, I think I probably would have preferred The Hobbit to be two films. I don't think it, it uh, really had the gravitas to go to three and while three is good i'm getting a little sick of the whole um let's take the last book and split it into two films starting from potter and and going to uh hunger games what about you guys yeah i mean on t- just to backtrack uh, quickly i do applaud the three film this these movie into three films from a financial standpoint for peter jackson's sake because the entire Lord of the Rings, you know, outside of the studio, anyone who worked on the movie got so screwed by the studio by how much money they made and how much they claim they made. And it's, it's a legendary thing by now. So the fact that at this point they came back to Peter Jackson and he was able to now, you know, put him over the barrel and say, sure, I'll make it and, and actually get paid, you know, from the residuals of the success of the movies, then, you know, kudos to him. That aside, <laughs> it it I agree with you that it 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 feels stretched. I I agree that I, I'm not really a fan of the although I never read a Harry Potter book or a uh, Hunger Games book. I, I I am not also not a fan of of uh, stretching it into two movies. I mean, another example is The Stand, which is one of my favorite books as a kid. Uh, Stephen King. Book, mm-hmm. which the unabridged edition is like 1100 pages they just announced that that's going to be four movies yeah wow. you know what i mean so it's kind of like uh you know i mean everyone's taking it where they can get it and it's they're all they're doing is it making it harder for them to make good movies if they can then awesome I, it's very difficult like in the hobbit i started reading it to my kid after he read after he, or just before he saw the first movie and the dinner scene in the book is 50 pages. You know what I mean? And it's 50 minutes almost in the movie. Like it's, it doesn't, like it's, it's long in the book, much less in the movie. Yeah. I think the problem is, 
it's just to use the meal analogy for a second. Like who hasn't gone to a restaurant and finished a great meal and, you know, you would like more, but, you know, it's appropriate that you finish at that point and you walk out almost feeling like you'd like more, but it was terrific. And that is the best meal. The worst meal is have a really terrific meal, eat more than you should and walk out and feel kind of bloated and, oh, it was great, but I just ate too much. And then you just actually kind of feel indigestion for the next. So that the immediate after effect of the great meal is either, uh, well, I would love to have seen more of that. And, um, and the, you know, the, the flip side, I should have stopped where I was. I should have stopped earlier. And I think the problem is that just because we crave something, we shouldn't get it. <laughs> in other words, we should be sort of left wanting more. And that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, that kind of, oh, my God, I'd love to have seen more of this, uh, shouldn't translate to, oh, my God, I've seen too much of this. I know, that's just my opinion. I feel like uh, The Hobbit would have worked well as two. And, yes, it makes financial sense at three, but at two... I would have been um, I would have been happier. I don't I don't uh, I don't think it sort of ruined it, but by the same token, if I think of this film, The Hobbit, The Five Armies, I just think of three distinctive bits. I think of the opening smog attack on Lake Town. I think of the battle, and I think of returning to Hobbiton at the end. Am I missing some huge section of the film? Because that's how I remember it. No, I think yeah. that's right, and I think um, I think it's very much on purpose. Um, the other thing was that before this film came out, they kind of did reveal that the big battle was going to go for forty-five minutes, and I think you know prior to Lord of the Rings films or, or other sort of big battle films, everyone would have got really excited about that and thought it was amazing, and and in some ways it was, you know, in in the press and sort of in the nerd sphere or geek sphere, I was going to say was that people were sort of like, oh, 45 minutes, you know, of battle scenes. But, I mean, we'll get to talk about this as well, but I thought they actually did really well that because um, even the battle scenes were segmented and you had battles in different parts of this valley that they're in. Um, But, you know, it's interesting what you remember out of it, Mike, because I had forgotten in the book about that Lake Town sort of attack and I thought that was probably the best thing in the film, Um, you know, even though the battle was also spectacular. I thought the Lake Town battle was just my favourite part of the whole film. It, well, apart from from, an, from a non-visual effects point of view, the returning to Hobbiton, which really did, I was an enjoyable sequence. Like coming home, running up to the house that's being auctioned, that was enjoyable to watch as an audience member. I thought, um, not a visual effects sort of spectacular, but I'd, yeah, it was a it was a great emotional yeah. beat that you needed to like reconnect to to the to Hobbiton since you hadn't been there and everyone knows it so well. Yeah. Uh it's great to see, you know, it, it it's it's comforting to be home and it's horrifying to know that your house is empty and you're going to have to go get all your shit again from everybody. You know what I mean? It's like it's a great up and down kind of uh kind of ending. But the Lake Town the Lake Town destruction with smog was awesome. I mean the the physics and the and the overall sort of realism to what is obviously a fully CG sequence was fairly mind-blowing outside of, you know, a drama or, you know, if any of you like or don't like The Hobbit. Let's discuss those visual effects in just one second. I just want to make one final point. It's a bit sacrilegious, but uh, I'm going to stick my neck out. And I'll give you full exemption for commenting, Jason, because I know that you're uh, kind of a friend. But I actually would have to say that Martin Freeman, well, great in many things and is good in this, uh, and terrific in Sherlock and stuff. Like for me, I just so missed Elijah Wood, and I so missed Sam. Uh, I just thought that Elijah Wood just anchored the. So like, it was one of the things that was kind of missing for me was just how much I thought Elijah Wood was underrated in what he brought to the performance in Lord of the Rings. It wasn't underrated, but it was just like that really helped the film a lot. And what magnified it for me was then seeing somebody else trying to anchor it as a different Hobbit albeit, you know, a valid different character. But the difference is, and I agree with you, the the difference is that in Lord of the Rings, it's it's Frodo's journey. They're all helping him, but it's his job, right? Yeah. To do to do the hardest thing that anyone could ask someone to do of for what they're trying to do in the in the epic. In The Hobbit uh, Bilbo's just like a side character in a sense. It's from his point of view, but it's the dwarves. It's Thorin's 
quest, mm-hmm. right? The whole time. So that's why he can't be as engaging as Frodo because where's his drama? You're just you're he's the audience basically. You know yeah, what I mean? But, For, but, uh, Bilbo. But like when Sam comes when Sam comes home at the end of Lord of the Rings and there's just generally like Mr. Frodo kind of moments. I mean, they were so good on screen between those actors. They were just and you know what? The thing is Martin Freeman's Bilbo just wasn't cuddly, huggable, lovable, agonizingly tragic in any respect. He was interesting, occasionally sarcastic and funny, but just not like I always had this feeling like he was just a tad, um, I don't know, self-conscious to be standing there in rubber feet. There, I've said it. <laughs> um, so, you know, and uh, whereas I just got such genuine, wonderful uh, stuff from from Frodo and Sam that I just missed that, I think. And uh, Do you think in, in this film, though, Mike, like um, Martin Freeman in the battle in particular, he's not actually in the sequences that much. Um, and I can't remember what happens in the book exactly, but he's sort of to the side with Gandalf a little bit. And, and obviously, you know, he survives the battle, which is in some ways taking away some of the anxiety about who might survive. But he's he's in Desolation of Smog a lot more, obviously, with, with um, in the treasure room and whatnot. But I just felt like he wasn't actually in um, Battle of Five Armies as much as he was in the first two films. That's, and I don't know whether that's driving some of your... But you know when Gandalf expresses the admiration that a little hobbit could do so much. And he kind of expresses that in both of the uh, the, the, um, trilogies. He expresses it to Bilbo. He expresses it, you know, separately. And maybe it's just my memory to to, uh, Frodo. But in the Frodo version, you know, because, you know, the first thing I did when I got back from watching, well, not the first thing, but, you know, in a week of watching the the, uh, last five armies, is uh, my family started watching The Lord of the Rings again because... You know, in the order of the of the logic of the films, they come after the Hobbit, and that opening sequence when um, Elijah Wood is next to uh, um, uh, you know, like uh, Ian McKellar on the Ian Holm. Oh, right on the but on the you know, um, yeah, in, in Hobbit anyway. That stuff at the beginning um, is so uh, wonderful and magical and interesting. And I don't know, I think, I think there are two things going on there. I think firstly, the acting. And then secondly, I really was gobsmacked at the time of Lord of the Rings over the forced perspective stuff that they were doing Yeah, agree. in that first film. I mean, just admiration, uh, intrigue, um, just completely sitting forward in my seat. And I didn't get that from 48 frames and I didn't get that from, uh, you know, stereo but in the first film, I just was mesmerized. Now, I don't think it's I just grown cynical as I got older. Could we say? Could we say that, regardless of the high frame rate? I mean, is it fair to say that by shooting stereo and needing to also do forced perspective, it forced him to do a lot more green screen work split between the characters, uh, even in the same scene, so that they could be overlaid in stereo and forced perspective, which then clearly changes your ability a you have to totally refine and change your composition and your storytelling to a certain extent on top of the fact that you're not working with all your actors at once yeah i mean that certainly has to change things outside of the text being not as strong as the three lord of the rings books you know what i mean i mean i did like seeing like the you know the sort of genesis of of Sauron's, you know, regeneration and stuff. That stuff was probably the most interesting to me, the necromancer and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I feel, uh, there is, there is something, there's a warmth and there is a filmmaking overlay that I experienced when I went back and, you know, like I watched the original Lord of the Rings, as I say, within a week of this film and I had such enthusiasm swell up over those opening 10, 15, well, it's 20 minutes because the, there's this huge prequel and stuff that you forget about. But you know what I mean? Like all those, there's a summary thing of, you know, the age of man before it actually gets to Hobbiton. But once you get to Hobbiton, I just felt so wonderful to be, it was like, oh, a smile to my face that I, I never quite got. And in both cases, I think they were beautifully shot. I think Andrew Lesney is just a pagan god and i drink his bathwater. he's just does magnificent cinematography he's one of my sort of four three or four top cinematographers in the world and i think it was shot differently in that respect but there was just 
a bunch of soul in the first one that just made the world fall in love with that series. But I do think Elijah Wood deserves a jolly good kind of dose of that credit because you see his performance again, his enthusiasm for life, his kind of genuine on-screen presence. Add to that Sam, which is an incredibly good dramatic device for us caring about uh, Frodo. And uh, yeah, it's a cracker, the first series. Anyway. No, I uh, agreed. <laughs> so let's discuss now um, the visual effects. And uh, let's start with that um, attack on uh, Lake Town. One of the most impressive sequences in this new trilogy. I thought um, everything about this was kicking it. In particular, I don't know if you guys thought about this, but Ian, I thought that the actual smog, when he's looking over at the, uh, at the arrow out of the clock tower, whatever it is, you know, um, he's like landed on Lake Town effectively and smog starts speaking and looking and actually sort of performing that smog to me was even a better facial rigged delivered performance than we saw in the previous film inside the treasure room. What do you think? Oh, I, th I think so too. And um, part of that is the environment. I mean, he's out and about rather than sort of restricted in the you know inside um the caves and the treasure room and so you sort of get an opportunity to i think the animators get an opportunity to really use his wings and body to express him a bit more but but even then the actual facial animation and the actual final skin look and you know the way everything's reflecting in him including the fire and water and um, what he's doing, yeah, you 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 really felt in the moment, especially as as Jason said, it's an all CG sequence. Um, so I agree. I I think Smog was up to a new level in this film. Jason, yeah, I mean, I think we're all going to say the same thing. But the seeing him in the throne room is a great introduction, and it's almost you know, in the if it was two books. And, or two movies rather, and right after the throne room when he flies outside, you get right into that Lake Town sequence. I think it would be way more powerful than waiting a year, you know, mm. for him to, to come out of the, to, to remember that he came out of the cave, out of the tr throne room, and then was attacking. Uh, so in the, in, in the second film, it's great as, it, it is the introduction. You see pieces and parts of him and he's revealing himself and he's looking for uh, Bilbo and he, they're having their conversation. And then, yeah, I mean, it, it's the distance that bothers me in the time, distance in, in uh, Earth time. Right. Uh, and so, and, and however, the sort of caveat is because they have a year's worth of development in, in, in a sense, they can make that sequence, you know, twice as good as it might have been, you know, a year earlier, just from uh, math, you know, time to do more math and more physics and, and write more simulations and things um, to make it all work. I thought, it, I thought it was great. I mean, it was what I was looking forward to seeing the movie was getting into smog. I was actually kind of upset that it went so fast. You know what I mean? He was, he was like up and dead and then it's, then it's credit sequence. Uh, which I guess makes sense, but it's such a strong character and it looks so good that you kind of want it longer. Yeah, it was awkward, wasn't it? Because in a way you've got that one chapter of the book that is effectively the Battle of the Five Armies turned into the most of the film. And yet the one thing I wanted was more of Smog, given that um, the second one was kind of his film that was funny. It was like a handoff where you expected him to be in, I expected him to be in a lot more of the, um, of the film. And I, a part of that was, I just had read the book when I was a kid. So I sort of forgotten the breakdown of what was what. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I think, I think the thing that I liked the most from a visual effects point of view about the sequence is that you've got, um, clearly a volume of space that's being simulated. And we get into this in a, um, a wide piece that we are looking at with, um, the wetter guys, but there's this volume of air that's being manipulated by the wings of smog, which is a very large thing creating wind currents that is affecting the fire sims, which in turn are directly affecting the actual destruction of the buildings. In other words, the fire sort of leads to the destruction. It's not just like a random bit of flame tacked on top of a collapsing building. 
And those collapsing buildings, of course, affects the flame more as it collapses, but then it goes into the water, which is a water swim, and then the water is splashing stuff up, and then you've got smog both plowing through the buildings, going into the water, there's fire, water, air, destruction. It's like sim on sim on sim on sim, and they all pull it together. They all relate really well. Um, and it's it seems, I don't know, Jason, what you think, but it seems really believably lit from the flames. It doesn't seem like a... Like obviously it's a CG sequence and they could do whatever they wanted, but it doesn't feel like it's an overlit sequence. We can still see what's going on. It's not murky, but it's not unrealistically like bathed it, in a ton of moonlight. No, it matches. Well, you wouldn't have moonlight with all the smoke coming from the yeah, thing. And so, and who knows if the moon's behind the mountain or, you know, whatever. But I, I liked their choice to not have some sort of bluish edge light on yeah. the fire you know, and, and the town and that it was just literally this sort of, you know, uh, ghastly, you know, pale, uh, not pale, but sort of, uh, you know, glow of fire everywhere. And so when you cut into the live action stuff, uh, of, you know, people rowing boats and Stephen Fry trying to escape, um, with the quartermaster or whatever that guy's name was, you know, when you cut from that to a high wide of smog, it matched completely perfectly. Uh, I don't think there was anything in that whole sequence that felt like that jumped out. Uh, and like you were saying, to tie all the volumes uh, together and the volumetrics from, you know, uh, in, in the real. I, I, we talk about this a lot. We talked about this way back on the 2012 or whatever that, that Cusack destruction movie was that oh, yeah. the guys have to become like physicists yep. which they are at you know especially the guys writing the code but but to to work through real world scenario a giant you know uh, uh animal or whatever you want to call them dragon of this size pushes x volume of air which creates you know the following rube goldberg scenario of physics is so insanely mind-boggling to me because i don't have a math degree like you do you understand that stuff, you know, <laughs> as they do. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I understand it as they do, but thank you. Well, you yes. know what I mean. Yeah, it's it's it's. I understand it conceptually, um, and it it always is so exciting to see something like that get so close to being real uh, in an unreal situation. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also thought it was a well laid out scene and did really well in communicating to the audience what was going on. Um, you know, it must have been well boarded or previews because I just thought the pa even though it's quick, Jason, you know, it goes by quite quickly. You know, I thought they did a great job of saying, well, this is where the dragon's at. This is where he's got to fire the arrow. You know, this sort of camera zooms into his chest area. And I, I just thought that was well staged and didn't sort of rely too much on crazy camera moves either, you know, despite the fact that he's got this aerial flying dragon around. So I thought I thought they must have planned that sequence really well, apart from executing the actual CG and visual effects. No, I would I would agree. I think it, it de definitely did not have uh, very much sort of magic camera mm. stuff. It felt very, you know, more... It was following smog, but, uh, you know... That that could easily, if it was real, be a helicopter shot or a drone shot or something. Yeah. Like it felt very uh, possible from an acquisition standpoint and paced. Yeah, I agree, paced very well. So the actual death, I was talking to somebody and they said, and I thought it was a really valid point, is that you, you he comes up into the air and sort of like dies and then falls down and stuff. And it's it's right on the edge. It's melodramatic, dramatic but not ridiculously theatrical. And uh, it's not like he, you know, he dies three times, puts his head up last time, gasps, and then <laughs> dies again. Um, it was a fittingly complex and yet quite, face, let's face it, dragged out death by smog. Um, I thought it worked. And I thought that the, the scale of the character worked and that you know, it felt like he was really, really big. But having a huge thing drop down like that, it could have felt like he was kind of small in the air and then huge yeah. when he landed next to anything to gave it scale. What do you think about the actual death now at the end of it, Jason? It, I, when I saw it, it reminded me of Bruce Willis ejecting from the plane exploding <laughs> in Die Hard 2. <laughs> <laughs> Personally. Okay. Right. But, you know, he's, that sort of cemented that, you know, 
up at the camera and back away kind of thing uh, for me after that. Uh, that aside, I do, I do, uh, it, it worked for me. I, I, I think I remember sitting and, and, uh, soaring, waiting to see how he was going to, you know, was it going to be like you said, like the, you know, flop in the air and then the last sort of from under the water splash okay. out and do something. But, you know, it was just, nope, you got a, an arrow to the one place you shouldn't get an arrow and you're done. I am so I like glad the they sort didn't of, do that last, you know, you think he's yeah. dead, he's not dead and comes out and kills one more person kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I liked, I liked how the, the glow sort of went away, the fire, you know, whatever generates the, the, the furnace inside of him is, is quenched, yeah. you know, before he hits the water. So it's not, it didn't seem overly steamy either. It was more of a splash. It wasn't like, a, you know, pss, putting out a match with a, you know, fingertips kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Uh, I uh, I think it was good. Okay, so we get to uh, the whole dwarf watching that sequence leading into the five armies. You've got some dwarf dwarf on elf, on men, on orc, on, on eagle action going. Um, so how did we <laughs> feel about that? Because that is, that is a really complicated piece of choreography. I mean, Ian, for me to understand who's coming in from what angle and, and then it's not just dwarves that are held up, it's dwarves that come in to support dwarves, dwarves that are held up. Um, there really are lots of armies here. For Did you feel lost or did you understand the terrain really well? I don't think I ever understood the terrain as well as I was meant to. Because I feel like the filmmakers and, and Weta Digital as well put a lot of effort into trying to make um, um, landscapes and areas and the the actual staging of the armies um, different, so that when a camera when you cut to a different area, you knew where you were meant to be, and th- and they really did, you know, have these different landscapes. Like a, there was a waterfall ice area, and then there was kind of like the dilapidated fort and then you know down in the actual valley and and back at um where the dwarves were but i don't i don't because you know it's such a long sequence i did feel a bit a bit lost in it um and it wasn't sort of until the end where you sort of had personal battles happening you know thorin against um and i'm totally blanking on his name azog i guess it is or bog um you know where you, you sort of feel a bit more felt a bit more comfortable but I mean, they did do a great job considering there's literally five armies plus all the other creatures that they had to do. Um, but I, I think I did, you know, kind of feel lost in that. I may, maybe you're meant to. Maybe it's meant to be really chaotic. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it, but I don't know if I ever felt completely satisfied with the fact that there was so much going on. I think I could have. I think I would have liked either going one of two ways. I think, in a sense, they went too far like there's the whole snow-capped thing off to the left-hand side which really felt to me like a different location it just felt you couldn't get from where the like the town felt linked to the plain but the mountain snow stuff and especially thick ice with you know water under it and stuff that all felt like that was an hour away from where yeah. the battle was going and they just on. ran there yeah. And they just ran there, yeah. And so it just felt like, well, hang on a second. Like you don't have solid sort of waterfalls of ice and stuff. That that just felt to me like someone had said, we need to make it really distinctive. That being said, so I'd like less of that, but I would have liked more strategy. It would have been for me, okay, maybe this is a bit like uh, I, I never played Risk, but I'm sure if I did, I would want that kind of thing. I'd, want, I'd like to have seen a... Um, you know how like you had really good work with uh, some movies with like Roman legions and stuff. Um, you even got it a bit in Gladiator, where there was a sense of uh, a clever positioning of armies relative to each other, and that there was a flanking movement, and that they divided here and kept these guys back there and did that. I think that if you could have had a bit more of that, so it wasn't just when the dwarves came running out, they just killed as many orcs as were you know there. I mean the the orcs, quite frankly are really imperial stormtroopers, aren't they? I mean, they just get knocked over like no bloody tomorrow. Like the elves looked cool and certainly were stylish and, you know, had the best hair gel, but the the, the dwarves just seemed to plow through orcs uh, when they came out from the, from the um, 
Uh, well, you know. it's sort of a, it's sort of just a mass, right? I mean, they're supposed to be like the disease or whatever, the just scourge of the plane that just comes in and envelops everything. I don't think you're, they're meant to be tactical, you know, fighters like the elves. So wouldn't it have been good if they could have been met with either from the, the elves or the dwarves, a more tactical response? Like if there had have been some really clever, maybe that just wasn't in the book, so Jackson didn't think he could go there, but then it was, you know, it was expanded from the book, so I feel like he could have had the right yeah. to do that. I mean, and you have Azog, you know, div- uh, bringing the guys in from the back, right? Like he brings the orcs in from the back and the front, kind of sandwiches them in a little bit. But uh, I, I felt like the overall tone of the battle was all you had to know was that the dwarves and the the good quote unquote good guys were losing. Yeah. That's all you sort of had to get. The rest was just chaos, which is, I guess how it would be if that was real. I kind of respond more to the big rock monster guys. Well, they were awesome. They were terrific. They were the guy that does the head butt and kind of like gets dizzy and falls over. (laughs) Like that was amazing. Like that kind of, like more of that. Yeah. yeah. And them like, coming up with the slingshot things on their back. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cracker like, of a shot. So those, those kind of things like is what I really respond to seeing a mass of, of like little figures just like going at it uh, in a high wide does nothing for me. But when those dudes, those big guys come crawling over the hill, you're like, all right. Aren't we a little bit susceptible also to the, oh my gosh, we've gotten to a problem the eagles have come in and solved it. Well, why didn't we just get them earlier? Which is basically the answer to almost every film, right? We need yeah. to get over here to get rid of this ring. Well, why don't we just get the eagles to drop it? We need to get out of here quickly. Well, here come the eagles. This well, tree's the on book, fire. It's almost like it's yeah. on purpose as a tongue-in-cheek thing, you know. And it's and like, people were sort of half laughing, half gasping when I watched it. It was like Well, in the in the book, the eagles in the first movie, they save them from the from the burning yeah, you know, trees, thing, yeah. trees, and drop them on this really high sort of towered rock yeah. and say, and speak, the eagles speak, and they talk to Gandalf, and they're basically like, you guys are a bunch of assholes, don't call us again, <laughs> we're going to help you, but, but basically they have, a, they have a grudge against Gandalf for something that you don't really know about, and, and they're just like, you guys need to just not be not calling, calling us, us. Yeah. you know, when you have a problem. <clears throat> Except for they could have solved a lot of problems yeah. if they'd just given them one definitive hand, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But then at the end, they, they have, you know, uh, Radagast, you know, I guess he's got the swaying, like, all right, let's go help him. And they're all like, all right, fine, Radagast, if you say it, then we'll yeah, come with yeah. you. But so you, the you way know? you just described that then, that was stronger than what it was in the film. Yeah. Like what you just described then, that was the pitch yeah. standing against the storyboards in the room <laughs> that would have made me go, yeah, let's do that. What Jason yeah. said, that sounds good. <laughs> I just, you know, I mean, that's probably all in the film. I just didn't get that. Yeah, no, I agree. What about Legolas in the battle and also in the private battles? Because, uh, I mean, obviously it's not in the book, but it actually got the biggest claps and the biggest roars in the screening that I saw. Um, you know, and I think part of that is just the Legolas character had sort of the same reaction in, in the Lord of the Rings films. Um, but I just okay. I wonder what you guys thought about that. I thought everything about his stuff was awesome, with one exception: the the tower that falls over that he yeah. manages to run across, <laughs> yes. and the fight sequence where he basically becomes Super Mario <laughs> up the stairs. <laughs> Super yeah. Mario sequence didn't work for me so well, where the thing is collapsing beneath him and he's skipping off things that are hanging in the air. Yeah. And manages, I mean, I was like, oh come on. Like seriously, like if I yeah. break a glass while washing up, it's a serious medical threat as opposed to, <laughs> you know, smashing it's a couple the, of buildings around you. It's the old droid factory problem. Which is what? That it feels like you a know, video. Well, yeah, just from from the prequel, Star Wars prequels, yeah. like it's just like, let's just make some crazy obstacle course. And, you know, it's like, and obvi- I mean, listen, we, these are not films rooted in reality, but you're 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 balancing like we're saying these these crazy re- trying to follow the rules of physics in the open of the movie and at the end of the movie they're by that point they're like fuck it let's just do something crazy because you know we're, we're following the rules too much and, and that's you know what I mean? I mean it's this is those shots were the ones that people were going most crazy about 
when I saw the film. So no matter how silly they are, people like them, I think. So here's the thing. I can complain about the Super Mario Brothers sequence, but I won't complain about the rendering of the characters in the Super Mario Brothers mm. sequence. In other words, that end battle, there's an enormous amount of digital characters. Oh, yeah. And it's rendered really well. It's they, I mean, there is... I, I'm now at the position, and I'm not quite sure why I'm going to say this, but I'm now at the position the hardest thing to work in a digital character is a big wide shot. I remember in the first Lord of the Rings films, there's a sequence when they're escaping after the the well sequence where they make the noise and the orc appears and they run through the cavern. And the tiny little character is running and giant you know, staircases for infinity. And I remember thinking, they just look really silly. And now I find that when you've got characters relatively up close, um, the renderers just nail it. But in many films, when they get smaller, they just look silly. I don't know whether it's a phenomenon of optics or the sampling or whatever. Um, it's, it seems just harder to get smaller characters on screen, as in big characters small on screen, mm. to, to read in a dramatic sense uh, and not look kind of silly. And I don't know, I just feel... Well, relative scale is really difficult. You know I mean, like if you took someone, you know, there's lens distortion and all sorts of things that come into play. If you say, okay, that rock they're running, that rock wall they're running next to is eight feet. The guy's four feet tall, but the camera's at such an angle that it's foreshortened or something is different. You know what I mean? Like there's so many things at play. It's not a direct relation that it can't be. It's like you're saying, it's got to be much harder to sell it effectively in a wide from an all digital standpoint than in a close up. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the quality of the environments as well as the quality of the characters was outstanding in this film. And there's a lot of work. We we talked about the technical sort of sim work at the beginning, but there must have been a hell of a lot of sim work at the end as well because there's a lot of dust and elements and god knows what else going on um, in those big sequences and the the geometry is just an avalanche of geometry that the renderers are having to deal with. And I would add to that, Mike, there's also this whole expertise in virtual production and performance capture and motion capture that Weta has obviously nailed ever since Gollum, you know, the first the first Lord of the Rings stuff. Um, and it sort of just goes by so quickly now, but they really just nailed it so well that you're convinced that a lot of these digital characters, and we know they're digital characters, but they really have that human performance or orc performance or whatever it is. And that's because they get sort of real choreographers to do that work as well. Yeah, I think you and I were both surprised, Ian, when we discovered that that while they were using Massive in the film, they were also using another crowd sim tool in the film, weren't they? That's right. Um, I think that one's called Army Manager. And it's because they knew they just had so many battles and, and small battles and small pieces of action and and um, things to choreograph, their layout tool, which I think is built inside Maya, um, was, was developed and it's called Army Manager. And it's sort of, they still use Massive, but it's, it's this way of quickly laying out, but also being able to change quickly, um, isn't it, those, those battle scenes? Yeah, the other thing that it allows them to do is because it's using um, a different level of geometry, it's not crappy games level, but it's not the final quality that you would get um, with a full uh, production at Weta they can present an environment with a huge army to Peter Jackson and he can use virtual cinematography uh, technology to effectively work out what angles of the battle he likes and how he likes things laid out uh, in real time, which is a monumental achievement if you think about how many characters we're talking about. And you can do that pretty easily. I say pretty easily, but you know, it's still hard. But with half a dozen characters or you know, a couple of characters, get a virtual camera and kind of... But once you start talking about these armies of characters, you'd have to really approximate them down to get anything that would uh, normally work well. And yet, where does manage to get that pipeline running so that... Um, Army Manager is a real production, as you say, virtual production tool, not a post-production tool, to allowing Jackson to uh, design the shots that he really wants, the way he wants to do them without having to sort of second-guess himself. And I think that it's a really significant advance. I think we're going to hear a mo more out of that before um, before we're done. It's you know it's easy to jump to Massive, but Massive gives a particular thing and and a certain. Um, a certain solution as opposed to the flexibility of using it the way that this virtual production does. It's almost like 
like massive is more as a post tool uh, to achieve the armies when you know where you want them, as opposed to what was happening with army manager, which is allowing them to work out where they wanted them to be in the first place. Yeah, that's right. And then, of course, um, you sort of mentioned it already, but just the amount of geometry and characters and environments, and I'm surely Wetters must be pretty proud of their new renderer, Manuka, um, to do that, um, which we've talked a lot about at FX Guide, and I think they tested it on dawn of the planet of the apes yep. and then it's basically the full renderer for this this show yeah i spoke to some people about that and they were like it was frightening going into this film with a new renderer uh, that was effectively an in-house beta uh just <laughs> frightening but look it delivered it's uh it's really really good stuff hey um i wanted to talk about could about hobbiton and going back to it i managed to when i was in new zealand recently visit the actual place hobbiton which is a tourist attraction now you can go there there are like 42 hobbit holes built in the you know set that is now Hobbiton and and uh, there's a couple of things that I learned there that I thought was really really fascinating <laughs> I just wanted to share with you so so I think Hobbiton looks beautiful and on film it looks idyllic magical um, just splendid you turn up in person in New Zealand <clears throat> and it looks idyllic magical and wonderful it is everything you would expect it to be including smoke coming out of chimneys and uh, you know gorgeous uh, Everything you you know that, that on the film, it's not a giant virtual set as was the environment uh, from uh, the end of the Five Armies. It's you know this real set they built because when they built the first one, it was temporary, and uh, when they came back to build it the second time, the um, the guy who owns the property said, "Well, we'd love you to do it, but could you build it properly this time instead of out of temporary material so that it hangs around?" And in collaboration with Peter Jackson and the farm that is the location for Hobbiton, uh, they've built it so you can go visit it. What's, what's really interesting about it though is, um, apart from the fact that it's just fun to look around it and certainly my kids loved it to death, you know um, Bilbo's actual house, in the films, have you ever noticed the tree above his house? It's kind of built under this giant oak tree. Is that ringing a bell? Yep, if you Google yep. any pictures uh, yeah, of his house, so. there's a tree like right above it. It's not... It's on a hill and you kind of look up at it, but nevertheless, there's a tree above it. Okay, so what happens, this tree is featured in the book. So from the outset, this was going to be there. So on the temporary version, um, Jackson apparently negotiates with some guy to buy a tree off their property and they cut the tree down in sections, cart it to the location where Hobbiton is going to be filmed and rebuild this tree so it looks like a giant oak tree which is great, except of course the tree is going to die from virtue of being cut down and they have to put, you know, fake leaves and stuff on it, but that's still fine. When they come back to do it for the new films, firstly, the tree has to be younger, so that doesn't work. Secondly, the tree that was there was a temporary tree, which, you know, was in pieces and was never going to hang around. So they get Weta Workshop <clears throat> to build this tree. So <clears throat> imagine now you say to the guys, we'd like you to build a completely to scale like proper one-to-one -one scale tree on top of this Hobbit uh, hole and we'd like it to look completely realistic and it has to look enormous albeit a bit younger than the tree that was in Lord of the Rings so no problem <laughs> the workshop guys do this now I think I'm getting my facts right here but either on that tree or the first tree which had the leaves stuck on that was a real tree but dead Jackson comes in a couple of days before they started to do principal photography and goes you know what the leaves don't seem to be quite the right color you know what the solution was? Spray paint? Yeah. They got in cherry pickers and they, they airbrushed the leaves on the tree. They had a teams Jesus. of people up <laughs> on the trees with little, you know, spray things, uh, coloring all the leaves on the trees to get it just right. Now, this is, this is either a dedicated man who is committed to trying to get things as right as he possibly can or somebody who's never seen a Da Vinci color grading desk. Either way... <laughs> <laughs> that's what they did uh and so you're standing didn't he watch sorry uh, i was gonna say didn't he watch the knowing or knowing or whatever the <laughs> <laughs> you can hire people to roto tree leaves yeah okay well anyway they um <laughs> so when you go there to hobbiton there is this bloody great tree there and uh you look up at it and i've got to tell you as with all the work from where to workshop it is indistinguishable from real and it's almost completely impossible to believe standing as I was just feet away from it that the darn thing is fake but there's now a giant effectively rubber and plastic tree on top of the uh, the thing so it's worth visiting just for that monumental feat of uh, but I mean I, I've got to say it, the, the detailing and the stuff 
I just want to give a shout out to Weta Workshop. We've spoken a lot about the work of Weta Digital. And of course, it is primarily a digital um, effects film. But from the special effects point of view, oh my God, the level of oh, details yeah. these guys go to and the quality of the craftsmanship and God, don't even get me started on those costumes and the leather work and just the metal work on the, the swords. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, and I got to handle some of the swords when I was out there at a separate thing. And... Um, and they, they make, you know, two versions of all these swords. Like they make the real one that's like really heavy, which you would never be able to film with all day unless you were super, you know, dwarfian in your strength. And then they make this aluminium lightweight absolute replica that looks like it'll be really heavy and hardly weighs anything. So you can hold it around your head a lot and wave it around and not, you know, basically uh, tire out. I mean, it's just astonishing. So use I, the heavy one when you're like doing like a big hero move so you can really feel the physical weight of it. And otherwise it's the super light one. Yeah, you know, and like they've got, they got like teams, I think there's some astonishing, I can't remember what the numbers. I'm making it up, but it's something like 32 different types of chain mail and stuff that they developed for different characters. And I think, I think that identity, the backstory, the culture that then gets translated into everything from hair to costume to armory to, you know, language to everything. I mean, that really is where you start to see uh, such depth of artistry, such depth of artisan care that it makes any of these films really, really impressive. And any criticism I have of The Hobbit is certainly not directed at art department or um, the effects or special effects teams who are just, I think, unbelievable. I mean, I just can't even begin to fathom how you'd produce the army load of stuff you'd need um, to shoot this stuff. It must be giant warehouses. Half of Wellington must be a warehouse storing all the stuff that was from the various films that's been put in storage because it's, uh, I mean, really, like, yeah, incredible craftsmanship. What's, um, what's your favorite uh, shot in the film and what's your least favorite shot? I'll start with you, Ian. I, I don't know if I have a favorite shot apart from what we talked about with Smog um, attacking Lake Town, but I just, there was one point um, during this third film that I was watching Azog and Bolg and and actually forgetting that they're completely digital characters. And I think that part of that is just how far Manuka has come with, in terms of rendering, but also um, that, that sort of performance capture work by Weta Digital. Um, because, I mean, I know that they're digital because of the fact that we're covering the film, but it, it, they were so good, I think, in this film that during one of those fight sequences on the 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 frozen lake um, or the waterfall. I just thought, oh wow, he's just fighting with a a guy in costume. And I mean, I I think they really fooled me there. So I guess it was probably one of those Azog or Borg shots, which I thought was just great. So anything that you didn't like? Anything that sort of stuck out as a oh, awkward I, moment? I thought. So. Well, I have to say, in in the battle sequences, and I think this is true of each of the Hobbit films. Occasionally, the sort of color grading or look seems very um i don't know how to describe it but sort of frosty or or sort of extra fantastical and not and then then you cut to a different scene and it's sort of more sharp and and not sort of soft focus and i thought every now and then there was a shot like that in the battle that didn't seem to be as sharp or as as nice and i don't know whether that's a combination of everything um the camera moving around or 48 frames or the 3d but occasionally it just reverted back to that sort of soft fan- fantasy look that I don't remember was totally in the Lord of the Rings films, but seems to be more in the Hobbit films. Okay. What about you, Jason? I don't from I don't think there was any shots I, that like stuck out to me as something I was like, ugh, you know. I think probably there was just an overall feeling of malaise on my part with the whole Thorin with his gold madness thing, which just got a little annoying. And I think that might've skewed my view of just that, that storyline. I don't think anything looked bad, but maybe I think it was probably more of just a dramatic stuff that bothered me. Um, shots. I, I remember trying to, keep i saw this way back uh not way back but you know around christmas on i think christmas day um i remember there was a shot that i really liked and i couldn't remember what it was i think it might have been right when thorin kills azog and it's sort of a wide 
right on the edge of the right on the edge of the precipice, frozen precipice there, and there was sort of like a uh, I wouldn't say, I don't think it was dusky, but there was sort of a, a, a more sunlit, lower in the sky sunlit uh, thing, if I recall. It's, I'm having trouble recalling, but there was something in that sequence that I really liked. Um, I mean, I like a lot of it visually. Um, I don't think nothing really stuck out to me as like, like I said, like I was just like, oh, God. Uh so I don't know. It's kind of a weird answer. I certainly think for me, yeah, it was Smog's performance. I was stunned that I would notice a difference between Smog in this film and the previous one. I just figured that you'd go straight on to animating the second one after the first one. No one would wait any you know particular length of time, and yet his performance, uh, as I said earlier in this in this show, was so good. It was. I was like, hey, what happened? <laughs> what? I even tried asking some friends. Uh, to see if I could get anyone to sort of leak behind the scenes. Was there anything different? Was it better? And then I asked them on the record, was there anything better? And I couldn't get anyone to give me any definitive answer. But um, if you guys are listening and anyone agrees with me or has any insight as to why uh, Smog looked particularly good at uh, at that uh, beginning of the, this film, I'd love to hear your opinion. I can't articulate what it is, but man, I thought it was uh, noticeably better. And that's saying something because it was pretty bloody good to start with. Hey, well, I'm on that, did you guys see the Stephen Colbert uh, Smog um, piece yeah. on the. Did you see it when it went live, or did you just see it on YouTube? Because it was a pretty remarkable thing. I saw it live. That must have been quite extraordinary. Because I mean, obviously, I knew what it was because somebody sent me a link. But if you were seeing that live, you mustn't have known what was about to hit. Yeah, I thought it was really. I thought it was really. Uh, it was pretty cool, actually. I think they did it another time during the final episode. Uh, when they had all the celebrities out, they had smog sort of peeking through the edge of the frame there. I think it was it. I mean, was it, were they doing live, you know, sort of interaction or was it like heavily posted? Well, I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch did the, the, um, the interview. So it was the real, uh, performance. I mean, obviously it was rendered, uh, beforehand what they had on the day, for him to film against, I don't know, but I think it was a meant, genius yeah. piece of, uh, of you know, marketing. I mean, when you do things like that, and obviously they're quite a lot of uh, hard work, and uh, and and non-trivial in the sense that you know it wouldn't have been just nothing to to produce that piece of character animation. I'm sure they enjoyed doing it, but man, it was a genius yeah. move for just getting social media behind you. Well, also Colbert is a massive Lord of the Rings like yeah. fanatic. He's nerd. in them, isn't he? he yeah, he, he's in. He's in well, them. Well, is it? Yeah, he's in yeah, Lake he's Town, in I think. Yeah, mm. I think. Uh, I think Peter Jackson's actually very good on social media. I think Peter Jackson comes off exceptionally well in his behind-the-scene making of videos when he's talking about the fans and about the work they're doing. I think he comes off as genuine, enthusiastic, humble. I think, yeah. It would be so dangerous to get many directors to do those pieces in that they would look sort of somewhat condescendingly on some of the harder core fans. Um, obviously, it wasn't shown where you guys saw it, but in Wellington where I saw this sort of preview, there's a, and I think it went before every uh, thing in New Zealand, they actually had a piece which was kind of a combined Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, thanks New Zealand for you know working with us on making these pieces where they had the actors talking you know, everyone from Kate Blanchett joking about New Zealand crews almost being good as Australian crews, right through to Peter Jackson, you know, addressing um, his fellow countrymen and just discussing the thing. And a lot of people saying thanks and how much they enjoyed being in New Zealand and stuff. It was, it was another example, I think, of Jackson being exceptionally um, in tune with the fact that uh, obviously there were subsidies and stuff used to make the film as there are with most, but it just felt like <clears throat> he's putting back into New Zealand and New Zealand loves him for it. And uh, there's seldom been a filmmaker that's been better, I think, at working social media in such a non-condescending... Because often it's kind of a bit like a 50-year-old guy in a bar trying to pick up a co-ed, you know, they start going on social media and you just cringe when you see them do it. But not so with uh, with Peter Jackson. I think he does a really good job on social media. Whoever's advising him and helping him film it and stuff, they're also really good. 
You've seen them but something about, haven't you, Jason? The you know the behind yeah, the scenes. No, they're here. they're yeah, I, I haven't watched all of them, but the ones I saw, I mean, he's like really relaxed and enthusiastic. Like it seems it seems genuine. I mean, I don't think yeah. he's an actor no. by any mm. stretch. So I think uh I think he's it just seems like a genuine guy. I mean, from all accounts, I, I'm not sure there's that many stories of him being a weirdo, you know. Yeah, I mean, I hear those great stories, Ian, like when he went to Comic Con as the um as the jester and stuff, he just seems to be yeah. really uh, in tune yeah. with the fans. And I don't think he's worried. Like maybe, maybe it wasn't Hobbit, but maybe it was Kong or even some other films where he'll still film those behind the scenes things, even though he's really tired. And you know, it's sort of an honest depiction of what's really going on behind the film, whereas most marketing material isn't isn't necessarily that honest, um, or isn't you know is is always the good things. So I kind of like the way he presents them. I think you're right. Do you need comments on the uh, sound on this one, Jason, or in terms of either the score or the um, the mix or anything? No, it seemed seemed you know on par with. I, I didn't have any special like Atomos, or I don't know if they did anything special in the theater. I saw it didn't have anything uh, out of the ordinary. Um, I think that the uh, the sound, the dialogue, and stuff was really was really healthy from my point of view and that it sounded like it was mixed in well. I could understand it, but also it didn't sound like it was too theatrical and over the top. And I have seen some other films lately where that's not the case, so I certainly appreciated that. Well, that's it. That's another, um, and in fact, the last of the uh, the Middle Earth productions. Obviously, New Zealand uh, is going to have to live with the legacy of <laughs> being Middle Earth, but I think that's something they're going to embrace and love. As for, um, as for uh, us here on the... Uh, the show, we're going to be doing a bunch of really good stuff uh, moving forward. There are some terrific films coming up. Of course, there's going to be things like uh, Mad Max and, and other big budget things. But we're going to try and do some smaller productions. We're also going to do some uh, more game stuff because we've got some good feedback on those stuff. So that's all coming up later in the year. And uh, Ian, we hope to uh, basically, I guess, both here, but of course, um, over at uh, FX Guide, look at the Oscar race in its uh, kind of detail. We actually hope to do another Oscar special, don't we? We will. And there'll be five films that we'll be looking at. And we'll hopefully also look at um, regular host Todd Vasari's Predictinator, which is very famous these days um, for predicting the winner of the Oscar visual effects winner. Um, and yeah, I can't wait for that. It's now, as great. we record this, there are two days to go before he comes out with his predictinator. So, I've uh, already gone on the record saying I think Dawn of Planet of the Apes is going to win. So, it'll be interesting to see what his predictinator says will be the winner. But, of course, I'm saying that before I even know what the nominees are. So, there you go. <laughs> Any early uh, guesses from you, Jason? Because um, kind of with his I think track Dawn record, of the Planet of the Apes was, Planet of the Apes was pretty insane. So, I'm trying to... Remember, what was the other... My brain is fa failing me. Maybe Interstellar or Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, Guardians had a lot of um, great visual effects. I just rewatched it over the weekend with my kid. And I, I love that movie. But the I think the um, Interstellar might, but there's so much practical effects in that too that... You know, I don't know if the if they're gonna get sort of leaned out a little bit by the the um, more like super CG movies um, outside of the crazy black hole and wormhole. Um, I have to say though, my favorite Planet of the Apes, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes image was one that someone put uh, posted on Twitter that had like a shot from all the apes running through the forest and it said dawn of the planet of the apes and it had an arrow pointing at one of the apes and the, it said dawn <laughs> like that one is that one is dawn <laughs> uh, uh, so. i want that image yeah so so jason where can people uh follow you and uh hear what you're up to uh on the twitters at Jason Diamond, one word. Uh, Thediamondbros.com is uh, is my uh, my uh, website that I have with my uh, brother for our production company, where we produce and direct commercials and what have you. Excellent. And you're about to head off around the place uh, filming. I know we've just managed to grab you before you 
seem to go all over the place uh, filming, so that's great. Yeah, yeah, L.A., Austin, and Nashville, so that'll be fun. Excellent. And Ian, what about you? Um, well, you can always check out um, our articles and things at fxguide.com and on Twitter, I'm at VFXblog. Brilliant. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for being with us here on the show and uh, we will catch you on the flip side. Don't forget to keep an eye on FX Guide for all our Oscar coverage. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See ya. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.